Well, join me in standing as we read today's sermon text and turn in your Bibles. I hope you have one to the first book in the Bible, one more time, to the book of Genesis, uh, to the very last chapter, uh, chapter 50. It was on September 8th of last year that we began our study of Genesis, and in God's providence, it's now on September 6th of this year that we come to an end. That's a sermon series that I've called from the beginning, the beginning of the end, and we come today to a sermon that I've titled, The End of the Beginning. Because what we're going to see along the way as I read the passage before us is a number of things coming to an end in the Bible's first book. And I trust that they'll be helpful to us, instructive to us as we go about our study this morning. Maybe you'll notice some of them as I read all 26 verses and then pray for God to bless our study and we will begin. So listen once again as God speaks to us through His covenant word. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And Joseph made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim, and it is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before we die. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because the evil they did to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and all his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, and the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, you alone know the various ways, the unique ways that all of us need the truth of this text. So send your spirit that we might receive his illumination to have our eyes open to the wondrous things that's found in this word. Father, we all know that we are dying people. You know that I am a dying preacher. Help us to hear then as we must. Words once again of dying saints from centuries past. That we might receive comfort in Christ. That we might receive joy in Christ as we look forward to His return. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I came across the story recently of a former clinical psychologist in Berkeley, California by the name of Mort Felix. He had lots of joy in what the Latin of his name meant. Because if you know anything about Latin, his, his name essentially means happy death. Mort Felix, happy death. And so whenever he was sick with some serious illness that laid him up on his sickbed, he would always joke with his wife, My dear, don't worry. Uh, when I die, you just need to play Ode to Joy at my funeral. Because he was quite earnest to see his funeral reflect his name, Happy Death. But then in time, cancer came. And it began to, as cancer so often does, ravage the body. As the lifelong atheists began to dwindle away, so did his prospect of joy, at the prospect of death. He was more often than not found conversing with his wife, saying, Honey, there's just so much sorrow. And so by the time he got to the end, it wasn't a reminder, play Ode to Joy next week. It was just one simple word, enough. The old pastors used to talk about the gospel ministry as preparing people to die well. And that's exactly what we are given to do. And so many more things, but if you wanted to boil it all down, uh, we exist to help God's people die well. To die in the trust of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, the hope of the Lord. And as we come now, once again, as we have in recent weeks, to a story in Genesis where patriarchs are going to die, that's going to provide another occasion for us to consider how is it exactly that we as God's people, like them, can die in the joy of hope, can die in the joy of trust. So the end of the beginning, you'll notice, has three scenes. Perhaps you saw that as I read the text. The first scene comes in the first 15 verses, and it's about the end of Jacob. And then in verse 15 through 21, it's about the end of guilt. Especially the guilt that Joseph's brothers had over how they had treated Joseph so many years before. 
So we'll look at the end of Jacob, the end of guilt, and then verses 22 through 26 deal with the end of Joseph. And the unifying truth that you're going to want to see across these three scenes is the scriptural call to trust. Trust that God is faithful to His promise, even to the very end. We've seen so many times along the way in our study of Genesis, God speak His covenant promise to His people. We've seen so many times, haven't we, in Genesis, across the way, God be faithful, in part, maybe not in full, but in part, to His covenant promise. And we see once again, even at the dying day of Jacob, at the dying day of Joseph, it's their trust in God's faithfulness to His promise that sustains them to the very end. And I'm sure that many of you know that the Christian life is something like a wandering road. That we're pilgrims on the way to the celestial city. But that wandering road, it's full of hardship and difficulty, isn't it? Perhaps some of you know that it often seems, not always, but often, that with each passing year and each passing decade, that winding road just gets harder and harder, more difficult, full of greater trials and troubles. And of course, God means for those trials and troubles to, like spiritual sandpaper, shine you after the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the devil means to use that sandpaper to wipe away your trust in God's goodness, to increase your doubt, to increase your despair, that maybe you, like another person, perhaps even Mort Felix, could reach your dying day and just say, enough. There's nothing good left for me. God's forgotten me. God's failed me. Perhaps even God has been unfaithful to me. But so that you don't get there, so that you do see the joy of trusting God's promise unto the very end, what we want to look at this morning is a beginning with the end of Jacob. Notice again verse 1 of chapter 50. We're told, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. So Jacob has died. We saw that last week. It should not be surprising, should it? That it's Joseph, not the brothers, it's Joseph that is alone said to be here weeping over the dead father's body. Now, if you weren't with us last week, what we saw in the story of Jacob as his life came to an end is this man who's really dominated the second half of the book of Genesis, so often showing himself to be little more than a trickster, little more than a father of favoritism, actually was a faithful leader at the end. He gathers all of his 12 sons together, and he speaks these prophetic blessings over each one. Final destinies is what we said last week. He said to each one, this is what's going to become of you. Some were better than others, some were worse than others. And then once those prophetic blessings were given, uh, what, he, what he said to his sons is, now you need to deal with my body when I die. And if you look up to verse 30 of chapter 49, it's full of these geographical points. It's almost an Old Testament equivalent of geographic coordinates. Sons, this is precisely where you must bury me. In the promised land. In the burial plot of the patriarchs. And so, after Joseph's tear ducts are dried, after he's weeping over the end of his father, a problem arises. Because he's commanded the sons to bury him in the promised land. Last week we saw that, yes, father will go back and bury you in the promised land. But Joseph, as the right-hand man to Pharaoh, is presented with a dilemma. And I wonder if you know what that dilemma is. Not offending Pharaoh in burying his father in Canaan and not Egypt. Because Pharaoh, who out of his 
goodness and generosity, his relationship, his love with Joseph had provided for Joseph's family. Israel provided everything that they needed, this great pasture land even in Goshen, and would have been a high offense for Pharaoh to hear, actually as a fly on the wall, what Jacob had said to his sons, do not bury me in Egypt, but take me home to Canaan. So Joseph needs to figure out exactly how he's going to get his father back to Canaan. And so he reveals himself to be ever the discerning and wise leader. He pursues diplomacy, you'll notice in verse 4 and 5, because he himself doesn't go to Pharaoh. He takes a few people, elders likely from Pharaoh's house, and look at what he says in verse 4 through 5. If now I have found favor in your eyes, please say this in the ears of Pharaoh. My father made me swear, saying I'm about to die in my tomb, that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, Joseph is saying to Pharaoh, let me please go up and bury my father and then I will return. And kids, you want to pay attention even to that language of let me please go up. It's a language from the Exodus, isn't it? Another Israelite's going to come centuries down the road and he's going to likewise go to another Pharaoh and say, let my people please go up to the land of Canaan. Uh, This Pharaoh is not like that Pharaoh, though, because that Pharaoh consistently refuses to let the people go. And this Pharaoh immediately lets Joseph go. So after a period of something like 70 days from from death to release, uh, the journey begins the way north. Again, this is probably about 200 miles north. In the intervening seven days, you'll notice in verses 2 through 3, Jacob's body was getting taken care of. It was being embalmed. Now, kids, I don't know if you know what it means to embalm a body. But it was this ancient practice that was quite significant for Egyptians. Because they believed, not like all ancient Near Eastern cultures, but like many, uh, they believed that life didn't end at the point of death. That there was something on the other side. And so what you needed to do was prepare the person's body for whatever it was that was coming. And so what they would do is they would take all the internal organs out of the body. And then they would begin to rub it with resin and spices. Perhaps it's why the Hebrew word used even in verse 2 and 3 for embalming, it means to make something spicy, right? It's taking away the smell. And they would wrap it up in all these layers of linen, and then the body was said to be ready for the next life. So Jacob's body in this form, with all of the people in verse 7 and 8, begin to make the journey north. Because we're told it's not just Israel that's going north. Look at what Pharaoh sends along. Verse 7, with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. And they make it all the way there, along with, verse 9 tells us, chariots and horsemen. Of course, it's going to be some 400 years plus in the future that chariots likewise are going to go with Israel back towards the promised land. But here, where they're escorting them to the promised land, of course, in many centuries, they're going to be chasing them. Back to the promised land. This very great crowd, the text says at the end of verse 9, eventually makes it back to Canaan. This great, it probably was ceremonial weeping, but certainly sincere weeping from Joseph accompanies this great party. So to such an extent, you notice that even the Canaanites essentially wonder, what is it with all these weeping Egyptians? What they say in verse 11 and 12, Therefore the place was named Abel Mitzrayim, Because that essentially means mourning or mourning place for the Egyptians. And when all the mourning is done, they began to make the 200 mile or so journey back south. Verse 14 says, Jacob was buried. Joseph and all who went with him returned 
to Egypt after burying his father. Now, you should ask the question, here are the first 14 verses, over half of our passage, why is it so significant for us to know all these details about Jacob's burial? Why is it so important, according to this final chapter in Genesis, that frankly we know in greater detail than anything else in this chapter that Jacob was buried in Canaan? I think there's two reasons we can give. First is the down payment of God's fulfillment of His promise. Because remember, God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the promised land would be theirs. But they didn't own anything beyond what? What seemed to be this burial plot, this field that was there in Mamre, this place where the cave field of Machpelah was. But they had something in the promised land, didn't they? They had this down payment. They had a a genuine plot in the promised land that God was already, again, not in full, but in part, bringing His promise to pass that the people would get the promised land. And there's truth that God has even given you a down payment on His future fulfillment of His promises. And I hope you know that. The Bible tells us that for any who trust in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1 announces that you've received a down payment, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So you too have a fulfillment, a down payment of God's fulfillment of His promise. But it's also, I think, meant to show us uh, in a down payment kind of way about the involvement in God's promise. Because again, look at verses 7 and 8. Students, if you want to mark up your Bible, just circle the number of times that it says the word all. Uh, We're meant to see that there's a lot of people going to the promised land, and not all of them are Israelites. And that's why the rest of the Old Testament will often remind Israel that, yes, they are the covenant people, and to them belongs the covenant land, but God is going to bring people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language into that very promised land. So it's why Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, and He says, I tell you that the time is coming when people will come from the east, when people will come from the west, and they will sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And what good news that is that you even have a foreshadowing of that here, because the reason it's such good news is that for almost all of us in here today, we are part of those people from the east. We are part of those people from the west that likewise can be involved in this promise of an eternal kingdom, an eternal promised land. So the end of Jacob now leads to the end of guilt in verse 15 through 21. I read an article once in the Smithsonian Magazine that was marveling at this scheme hatched up by a local private investigator. He would go to nearby neighborhoods, unannounced, knocking on front doors. And when the door was opened, he would show them his investigator's badge. And then with great solemnity, he would say, I'm sure you don't need me to tell you why I'm here. And the magazine marveled how more often than not, whoever opened the door would kind of step back and you'd see this kind of internal dialogue race across their face. And in a matter of seconds, they would simply ask, How did you know? Marveling at this idea that so many people, after keeping crime or sin secret for so long, would so easily just give it away. But it's true that uneasy consciences fertilize fear of being found out. And it's 
an uneasy conscience in Joseph's brothers that now fertilizes the fear of verse 15. Look at what they say. It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. That language is quite similar to language from Genesis 27 verse 41 where Jacob was told, your brother Esau, because you stole his blessing, he hates you and he's going to pay you back. How's he going to do that? He's going to wait for father Isaac to die and then he's going to kill you. So the generation kind of moves on down and it seems like the brothers have the same concern. Oh no, daddy Jacob is dead. Now Joseph is going to lose this kind facade that he's had for so many years and he's going to act as retribution upon us. And surely you might be able to understand the logic behind their concern, however real it wasn't. And so what they do is, I'm quite certain, they concoct this whole ruse in verse 16 and 17. They send a messenger to Joseph and said in more colloquial terms today, hey, dad told us on his deathbed you have to forgive us. He made us swear, tell Joseph to forgive you for the sin you committed against him. And even if it wasn't just a ruse, and it was much more sincere, I think you'll see even the sincerity in verse 18, because they go to Joseph eventually, and they fall down before him and say, Behold, we are your servants. But they only come to say that after they found out, look at the verse, end of verse 17, that Joseph wept when this was spoken to him. Now, students, you may have noticed that Joseph, he weeps a lot in Genesis. I mean, he does it. And why is he doing it here? He's getting this report of what his dad supposedly said from his deathbed requiring forgiveness from his beloved son. And he weeps. Why? Well, I think it's because he was so grieved by how greatly they misunderstood his goodness. Some of you parents probably can sympathize with Joseph in this moment. Maybe in the distant past or the not-so-distant past, you recall a time or one of your children came to you to confess something that they had done wrong. And they came before you and there was this great trepidation written across their face, terror in their soul to say what happened to you. And maybe you even told them, or maybe you thought internally as they're recounting all of this to you, my son or my daughter, why would you ever think I would respond like that? Why would you ever think I would respond with that? That seems to be what Joseph is saying here. Why would you ever think that I would respond in that way? For look at what he says in verse 19. Do not fear, for I am, am I in the place of God? You'll recognize a couple of things about Joseph in these two verses, verse 19 and 20. Uh, that he's a good theologian. He's got good sound doctrine in his body. First, he's got good doctrine of sin. Because what does he recognize? Brothers, sin is ultimately against God, not me. So, so God is the one that alone can judge between you and me. And kids, you need to learn that lesson early on as you think about sin. Sin isn't primarily about you sinning against your father, your mother, your siblings, your friends, your teammates, your schoolmates, whoever it may be. It's first and foremost against God and God alone, which is why David can pray, of course, in Psalm 51, after adultery and after murder. What does he say? Against you and you only have I sinned. Am I in the place of God to judge between you? That's what he says. But then he goes on to make this stunning declaration of verse 20. 
And if you're familiar with the story of Genesis, you know how many sentences in the Bible's first book are etched upon the hearts of so many of God's people. Maybe you could do something interesting over lunch today or dinner this evening and just recount without your Bible open. All of the truths that you basically know by heart from Genesis, because they're just that well known. The Bible starts, Genesis starts in that way, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You don't have to go too many chapters before you run into another statement that ought to be etched upon our spiritual minds. And you get all the way to the end, chapter 50, verse 20. One of the most important statements for God's providence in all the Bible. Look at what Joseph says. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. There's a theology of providence wrapped up in those simple phrases. If you have time to meditate on it. And we've seen it over and over in the book of Genesis. All of these actions, all of these decisions, all of these circumstances where evil was done by the covenant family. But what we find is God doing. He's not just working in spite of the sin of his people. He's so often working through the sin of his people to bring about his promises. To bring his purposes to pass. And he does that all throughout the Bible, doesn't he? Even all the way up until that climactic crescendo-like moment in the cross of Jesus Christ where on the day of Pentecost, Peter can declare in Acts chapter 2 about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. What does he say? You lawless men delivered him up and crucified him. But right before that, you know what he said? According to the determined plan and foreknowledge of God. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Our very salvation depends on God's power and ability to bring good from evil. And what a comfort that should be to you today, because some of you might find yourselves in a situation or circumstance or scenario where you feel surrounded by evil. Disappointment, whatever it may be, being sinned against, and you wonder, can God bring good from this? Will God bring good from this? The good news of the Bible says, yes, he can, and yes, he will. So Joseph ends their guilt. Notice verse 21. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I don't think there's any reason not to stretch out verse 21 to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you might be scared to go to him and repent of things you've done wrong. Wondering how he might react to what you have done. And the good news of the gospel is Joseph is just like Jesus. And when you go to him, he does what? He comforts you in removing your guilt. He speaks kindly to you. Not as this harsh dictator, but a tender, loving savior. So the end of Jacob brings the end of guilt and now the end of Joseph Verse 22 and 23 are there to let you know how blessed Joseph was even to the end of his days. He dies at the age of 110, the text tells us. That was the ideal age of death according to Egyptian culture. The truly blessed individual would die at the age of 110. And here's Joseph dying at the age of 110. And not just that, you'll see in verse 23, he sees his great-grandchildren. Many of you 
might know the desire, perhaps even the blessing of seeing great-grandchildren. He's blessed until the very end. You'll see in verse 24 and 25, he essentially commands his brothers, just like Jacob did, his father before him, hey, you need to do something with my body after I die. I don't leave my bones here to rot in Egypt. Take them back to the promised land. And so we reach the end of the beginning. Look at verse 26. So Joseph died, being that ideal age of 110 years old. And they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And it's striking that the book that began with the creation of the universe ends with a simple coffin in Egypt. That began with so much, ends with what appears like so little. This great theme of the seed of the serpent warning against the seed of the woman that we found all throughout Genesis. It seems as though here at the end of the beginning that the serpent is winning. God's great redeemer, Savior Joseph, he's dead. Death still rules over God's covenant people. Not just that, they're not in the place where they belong. They're in Egypt, not Canaan. Not just that, they're soon going to be oppressed, put under bondage and slavery for centuries and centuries because another Pharaoh would come who wouldn't remember Joseph. It seems, doesn't it? The serpent is winning. But we know the full story, don't we? That what God is doing is just setting the backdrop, setting the stage for what's going to be one of the greatest displays of His goodness, power, grace, and might over the serpent. His victory over the enemy when He redeems His people from that very place. And guess what goes with Him? The bones of Joseph. Almost as though it's like an ark of the covenant with God's people. Here goes Jacob, trusting in God's faithfulness to the very end. Here goes Joseph, trusting in God's faithfulness to the very end. I hope you, too, will trust in God's faithfulness to the very end. Years ago, I listened to this online course from Harvard University on Civil War history. And frankly, the only reason I listened to it was because a friend of mine told me, you have to listen to this professor who gives the lectures in these courses because he's just, he's an amazing teacher. And you didn't have to listen to very many lectures before you realized he's an amazing teacher. And he had this way of bringing every lecture on history. Some of you uh, love history so much that you don't need a cliffhanger at the end of the lecture to get you going to the next one. But I assume many of you don't like history enough that you need something of a cliffhanger to keep you going over the course of these dozens of lectures. And so he had this inimitable way of bringing the lecture to a close, but not precisely to a close, uh, in a way that he, you wanted to listen, to listen immediately to what came next. And so he had this phrase that always signaled the end of his lecture. And he always said in this kind of draw-like tone, I'm going to leave you here. And I always thought as I was listening, oh, don't do it. I want to keep going. Keep going. Let's figure out what's next. Because I don't know what's next. I don't know my nation's history as well as I should. Well, Moses seems to say at the end of Genesis, doesn't he? I'm going to leave you here. And if you know the story... Over 400 years pass by, and God doesn't seem to be doing anything. And you want to say, don't, don't leave us here. Keep going. But our series on Genesis must come to an end. So I'm going to leave you here. <laughs> with five simple truths about God according to Genesis. 
If you've been at Redeemer long enough, you know that I guess I tend to say this after almost every sermon series we finish, and I don't mean it facetiously or humorously, I mean it seriously. Many of you won't ever hear another sermon series through Genesis. I told that to my son yesterday in the car after we were leaving a soccer game. We were talking about today's sermon, and he said, really, Daddy? I said, you never know if you're going to hear another sermon series through all 50 chapters in Genesis. Even if you do, it's entirely likely if you sit under my preach, it'll be 25 years before I get back there. Should I still be preaching? And you'll be as old as I am. (laughs) Some of you won't ever hear another sermon series through Genesis. So what is the picture of God that you must get from a book that's all about God, the Lord of the Covenant? Five things, and then we're done. First, he is the God who speaks. He spoke from the beginning, all creation into existence. And what is it, if you have eyes to see, that sustains Jacob and Joseph at the end, at their dying day? God spoke and promise that they will get to the promised land eventually. He's the God who speaks. Number two, he's the God who is sovereign. I told you some 51 weeks ago as we began our journey through Genesis. Genesis announces to us that God is sovereign over all things. He controls everything. That means there's not one maverick molecule, one autonomous animal, one independent individual in the universe. God rules over all. He controls all things. Even something like the sin of brothers to bring about the salvation and redemption of the chosen people. Number three, he is the God who is subtle. And this is maybe the most significant thing to walk away from with Genesis. We've seen, haven't we, character after character, have years and years, maybe even decades go by in their life before God seems to be doing anything for them. Before God seems to be bringing about His promises in their life. And yet what we know from Genesis is God is moving. Subtly, as the old hymn says, God moves in a mysterious way. So if you're in a place in your life right now where you are genuinely doubting if God is actually going to do anything for you, you've been waiting for a long time. Many prayers have gone unanswered. And I don't mean just weeks. I don't even mean months. I mean years and years of nothing seeming to change. And the devil wants you to believe that God is no longer for you. Genesis is here to say, don't worry. God is working billions and billions of things together that you'll never understand and never fully see all for your good, such as the subtlety of his sovereignty. Number four, this is the God who is steadfast. We've seen it. He speaks his promise into existence. He gives it to his people. And along the way, he's fulfilling it, slowly but surely, in part, not in full, but he is bringing it to pass. He's the God who speaks. I wonder if you're listening He is the God who is sovereign. I wonder if you're bowing. He's the God who is subtle. I wonder if you're watching. He's the God who is steadfast. I wonder if you're hoping. Fifthly and finally, He is the God who saves. I wonder if you're trusting. My twin sister is one of those readers of books that sometimes you'll come across. She likes to read the end of the story before getting too far into the book. You know, after a few pages, you'll see her already at the end of the chapter, at the very end of the story, and you'll say, what are you doing? She's like, well, I want to figure out if it's worth my time to read the rest of this book. I've never understood it for the last 20 plus years, and she still continues to do it to this day. But some of you might know how spiritually that is part of our life in Christ. We want to know if it's worth it 
to keep going when we don't understand or when it's tough. Well, the good news of this passage is it gives you the end. It gives you the end. Look at verse 24 and 25 once again. Kids, notice the phrase that Joseph repeats in both verses. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from being here. How is it that Joseph can trust in God's faithfulness to the very end? Because he knows God will visit his people. He doesn't know when, but he knows God will. And we know when God did. Moses shows up in Exodus chapter 3 and God speaks to him from the burning bush and says, Go back to the people of my heritage in bondage and slavery in Egypt and here's what you're to tell them. God, Yahweh, has visited his people. It's why throughout the Bible the language of visitation becomes language of salvation and redemption. It's why if you fast forward the story of scripture so many centuries, you get to Luke chapter 7. Jesus is there performing one of his many miracles. He raises this widow's dead son back to life. As you can probably imagine, people are looking around at each other in astonishment and amazement at this miraculous work. And what do they say but God has surely visited his people? Because God has visited his people in Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is not merely that God has visited his people in the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, but that God will again visit His people when His Son returns. So Jacob and Joseph, they die in hope, they die in trust, don't they, knowing that God is going to visit them. His promise is going to visit them, and they're going to make it back to the promised land, but their trust only goes so far as a reburial in the promised land will let them go. Now Jesus Christ visits His people, and He brings them, doesn't He, to the eternal promised land, Not to bury us there, but to resurrect us, that we might live forever in the presence of the God who speaks, the God who is sovereign, the God who is subtle, steadfast, and the God who has saved us. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we do ask that you would help us in the midst of our struggles. Lord, again, we confess that you alone know the trials, the temptations, the troubles that assail us. We know that the devil wants to tempt us to doubt your faithfulness. Lord, whatever we take from this sermon, whatever we take from this sermon series, let it be the good news that you visit us in Jesus Christ. That he is the God who speaks. He is your image that is sovereign, subtle, and steadfast. That He is our Savior. So as we continue to wait on your kingdom, long for that eternal promised land, may we do so in the fullness of trust, knowing that you hold us fast. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.